Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Genesis. Uh, today we're, we're actually going to do a review of the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. Um, so you're going to want to have your Bibles out and ready. If you take notes, have your pen uh, and paper out and ready to go, uh, because we're going to just do a survey of these 10 chapters. It won't be exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, but I wanted to set the stage for next week when we go back to Genesis chapter 11, that we would be reminded of all the things that we have learned and seen in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, there's something that, that I want you to consider before we start talking about Genesis, though, um, and I want you to think about it through a particular lens. Uh, a few years ago, back in 2021, uh, there was some rock art that was created many years ago in Big Bend National Park that was defaced. Now, according to a news release by the National Park Service, that the act of vandalism took place on December 26, 2021. We know that because the people who defaced it wrote their names and the date that they defaced it on the particular item. It read, Isaac plus Ariel, December 26, 2021, as well as Norma Adrian, 2021. So if you know these people, please turn them in. They did something illegal. Just kidding. Hopefully you don't know them. Rock are also known as petroglyphs or images carved into a rock. And the top layer of the rock is pecked or scratched to reveal a color contrast to create forms and figures. Petrographs can be found throughout the United States in a variety of styles. Big Bend National Park belongs to all of us, Big Bend National Park Supervisor Bob Cronenmaker said in his press release. Damaging natural features and rock art destroys the very beauty and history that the American people want to protect in our parks. With each instance of vandalism, part of our nation's heritage is lost forever. Now, why would, I, why would I mention this at this point uh, in the sermon? My fear is that oftentimes we do the same thing with God's Word, with the Bible. We open the Bible and we read into it what, what we want to see, or we open it and look for some kind of inspiration or something to make us feel better. And in the process, we miss the larger picture of what God is up to. And let me just suggest to you that God, in his word and in his plan, is weaving together a beautiful picture in his word. And when we miss this picture, we, we cheapen what God is doing, or we boil it down to simply be about us. Today, as we look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, this is the thesis for today. It is a history. Oftentimes, people want to boil Genesis down just to a history lesson which it does include history, everything from the very beginning of the world and the start of the human race. But let me suggest to you that there is a larger story that is interwoven all throughout Genesis that teaches us much about the character of God and the nature of mankind. Genesis 1 through 10 isn't simply just a history, but it also gives us a theology about God and an anthropology of man. I want to invite you this time, if you haven't opened your Bibles up to Genesis, if you would do so already, 
open them up to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read just a few verses, and then we're going to dive into an outline. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 and stand with me. We're going to read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31 as our jump-off point. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fulfill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. Throughout these ten chapters, there, there's something in particular that I, I want you to see, a, a bit of a comparison and a contrast, and, and three different points that I think are important for us to see in these ten verses. The comparison is going to be a comparison between what we see about God and what we see about humans. What character or attribute is revealed about God and what is revealed about us as humans. Right away in the first three chapters of Genesis, one of the most amazing things that we see about God is his incredible power. But compared to that in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we see a comparison between God's power and the weakness of man. Now, think about this with me. Maybe you've contemplated this many times. Uh, as you've considered the book of Genesis. But one of the things that we see about God is this incredible power that he has, that he is the creator and the life giver of everyone and everything in the entire universe. In fact, he is so powerful, he has the ability to create everything out of nothing. That is how powerful our God actually is. Psalms chapter 33, verse 6, describes it this way. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time creating things just out of stuff that already exists. I don't know. Some of you are good at construction. I am not. If you need something fixed or worked on in your house, please don't call me. I will only make it worse. But our God is so powerful that he doesn't even need raw materials to create things. He simply speaks and things appear. The whole entirety of the universe appears by the breath of the mouth of our God. Now, if that wasn't enough 
for us to get our minds around, contemplate what happens at the very beginning of Genesis in terms of God. It says these words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there was something that existed before the earth and the world and the universe existed, and that is God. Meaning, God is eternal, and he existed before time. God is so powerful that he speaks, and the universe appears, and he is so powerful that he is not bound by time. He existed before time existed. Not only is he the creator, not only is he eternal, what we see also at the beginning of these particular, this particular book is that God is a provider. God gives them a command, be fruitful and multiply, and then he provides all of the resources to do those commands. He gives them food and water, and in fact, he gives them the institution of marriage between one man and one woman to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. There are two types of commands that we see God give right away in Genesis chapter 1. It's a positive command and a prohibitive command. Two types of commands, positive and prohibitive. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. That's positive. We see that in Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we see both of them together. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And he says in Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17, that in the garden he is meant to keep, he should not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17 records this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There is a positive command and a prohibitive command. And right away, we've already seen the power and the majesty and the incredible nature of God as the creator, as eternal, as provider. But there's this comparison that's starting to be built here between God and man. Man, clearly in Genesis, does not have the ability to create himself. He is created by the power of God. But he's created in a very special way. He's created in the image of God. But, but this reminds us that we all had a point that was our beginning. Your birthday is the point in which you entered the timeline and had your beginning. Which, let me get on the soapbox here real quick. I think it's silly that people celebrate themselves on their birthday because you didn't have to do anything on that day. That's not your day. It should be your mom's celebration day, right? But your beginning was your birthday. And what we see in these first couple chapters of, of Genesis when it comes to mankind, one of the ways in which we're radically different than God is that we're prone to sin and we're prone to being deceived. Even when we have everything we need, 
we will, in some way, think that there's something better. But let me just tell you, it, it never will be. You, you've heard that saying, the grass is always greener. We find out here in Genesis very quickly that the grass is not greener. We think that we can get something better than what God has given us, but that is not true. And we see this continue even into the New Testament. Maybe you're familiar with 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. He says in 1 John 2, 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. What we see in Genesis and what we see continue throughout 1 John is this influence that the demonic world can potentially have on mankind, even though God has given them everything that they need to do what he's called them to do. There's something very interesting that we see in the weakness of mankind right away in Genesis, in particular in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. One of the greatest weaknesses of mankind is that when we sin, we try to hide from God and blame others. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 puts it this way. And when they had heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now, let's get one thing real quick, uh, straight real quick before we go ahead into verse 10. God wasn't confused about where they were. God is the eternal creator and provider knew exactly where they were, but gave them opportunity to repent and turn to him. And instead, they, they hide from him, which if we have a clear picture of who God is in the very beginning of Genesis, we know that it is foolish to hide from God. How are you going to hide from a God who is eternal and so powerful he speaks the universe into existence? And we might think that it's silly for Adam to do this, but let me just ask you, brothers and sisters, isn't this true of us now? How many times in your life have you committed a sin and the first thing that you turn to is not God? It's something else. And you try to hide and dismiss the sin that, that you've committed. In chapter 10 of Genesis, or verse 10 of Genesis chapter 3, Adam continues on. He speaks back to God. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God responds to that by saying, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you have gave to me or gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, let me just tell you at this point, maybe in your life, but definitely in the culture, what is happening here has reached an epidemic level that the problems and the sins that I have committed are always someone else's fault. And in this passage, Adam has the audacity to blame God himself. And let me just ask you, have you ever tried this? Have you ever tried to blame God or blame someone close to you for the sin that you've committed? What we see right away is that even though God is amazing and awesome, we as people want to hide and sin and push him away. 
And sin has a profound effect on our relationship with God and with each other. Husbands, let me just talk to you for a minute. If something goes wrong in your house and you immediately blame your wife, how well does that go over? It doesn't go over well at all. Or if it the opposite were true, wives, if you were to blame your husband for something that happened in the house, how well would that go over? It has a profound, sin has a profound effect on our relationship with each other, but it has a profound relationship with God. And as a result of that, we now all suffer the curse and effects of sin. If you remember what those are in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, it's pain in childbirth, and work is harder and painful. But there's something that's worse than both of those things in the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, 23 outlines that. It says, Therefore the Lord God set him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. This passage tells us right away that our sin causes a distance between us and God. It has a profound effect on our relationship. You see, Adam once walked with God in the garden. Now he's put out of the garden and separated from the presence of God. And I'm sure that you have felt this before, that when you've committed sin or you're continuing to live in sin or blaming someone else for your sin or blaming God for your sin, God feels distant and far away. And this powerful God that has the ability to create the universe, to speak into existence everything that we know and see in the universe, this God that has provided everything for us, we now push him away in our sin and weakness. But not only do we see in the first three chapters of Genesis, a contrast between the power of God and the weakness of man. We see a contrast between the grace and mercy of God and the sinfulness of man. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, what we find is that sin continues all the way to murder. And it's not just any kind of regular murder. Genesis chapter 4 verse 8 tells us that one brother murders another brother. Cain speaks to Abel and calls him out into the field, and he rises up against his brother, Abel, and he kills him. We were talking about this today in uh, our Bible study class. At this point, the population of the earth is very small, five to ten-ish people, maybe at the most, that means in Cain killing his brother Abel, he kills one-tenth of the world's population at the very highest. And if that's not enough, he is killing his own brother. He allows his anger in his sinful response to God and to his brother to commit murder. The sin continues on as man takes for granted the grace of God in chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, there's this incredible statement that's made about mankind at this point. 
Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, sometimes it feels like this is the day and age that we're living in currently. And, and I think oh, the wickedness of man is great on the earth, but I don't know that we've reached a point where the intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But there's something amazing that happens in chapter 5 that, that should blow us away in terms of the grace and mercy of God. That even though man is as wicked as he could possibly be, we find that God is gracious and he still allows humanity to live. Because if you remember the curse in Genesis chapter 3, and even the, the command that God gives to Adam to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die, God has the right to kill all of humanity at that point in which they eat. But he doesn't. And we know that he allows humanity to continue to, to grow on the earth because of Genesis chapter 5 in the genealogy of Adam. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 says this, this is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made man in his own, in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And Adam had lived 130 years, and he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Not only does God not kill Adam at the point that he eats the apple or eats the fruit, he allows Adam to continue to, to live and have another son, a son named Seth. Not only does he allow them to continue to grow and, and live, what we find in Genesis chapter 8 is the beginning of what will soon become in the later New Testament or just in the New Testament period more clear is the way in which God will provide salvation for his people. God is not just gracious enough to let them live, but God is gracious enough to provide for them salvation. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 2 says this, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and all the windows of heaven were closed, and the rain from the heavens restrained. You see, even though man sinned, God is gracious enough to provide salvation for them and gracious enough to allow them to grow and prosper. And we see this again, this prosperity in Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is often referred to as the table of nations because we, we see all of the people groups that proliferate out into the earth in Genesis chapter 10. In particular, verse 32 ends with this. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, this is where we have to stop and think about what's happening here. Man has shown himself to be weak in moments of temptation. He has shown himself to continue in sin, and yet this great and mighty 
gracious, wonderful God provides a means for them to continue to grow and live on the earth and provides a means of salvation for those who would repent and turn to God. This, brothers and sisters, should begin to blow our minds when we consider what God is actually like in comparison to what we're actually like. There's, there's one last thing I want you to see in this passage before we, we get to some application. We've already seen the power of God in comparison to the weakness of man and the grace and mercy of God in comparison to the sinfulness of man. And now we're going to see the wrath and justice of God and man's lack of fear of God. When I was young, uh, most of you have met my parents. Um, my, my mom is a smaller lady. By the time I was 12, I was at least three or four inches taller than her and probably outweighed her by 50 or 60 pounds. And I would often get in trouble while my father was not around. And she would say these dreadful words, wait until your father gets home. My dad's in his 70s. I take six classes of jiu-jitsu every week. I have for two years. I'm pretty sure he could still beat me up if he wanted to. There is a very real fear of my father that I have, that when the threat of his punishment comes, I immediately straighten up. Now, I know as a grown man, he wouldn't try to uh, corporately punish me at this point. Maybe he would, I don't know. But there is this sense that we should start to have as we see the power of God and even the grace and mercy of God that should remind us of what could potentially happen to those who don't turn to God. The, the wrath and justice of God is very real and very present. And even if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, there should be a sense of fear over the wrath and justice of God for those that I know that do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because what we see very clearly, and this is where people start to get really uncomfortable when they talk about God, because we like a God who is powerful, and we like a God who is merciful, but we don't like a God who is wrathful. Because Genesis chapter 7 tells us that God is just, and he will not let sin go unpunished. And listen to how he punishes sin in Genesis chapter 7, verses 20 through 23. He says, the waters prevailed above mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostril was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Immediately, you should get the sense that God has no problem punishing sin. No problem. And he has no problem doing it at a worldwide level. But again, we see the mercy and grace of God immediately in Genesis chapter 9. And he's gracious to provide a way of obedience and gives mankind a covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 through 15, 
reminds us that God says to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow is a sign of covenant between God and people that there will not be a worldwide cataclysmic flood that kills everybody on the planet. But every time that we see a rainbow, we should be automatically reminded that God is a God of justice who will not allow sin to go unpunished. And and here's the crazy thing about what happens with us as people, because everybody can see, and everyone probably has seen a rainbow in their life. And yet, even though we know what God has done for us, we're still prone to sin in spite of all God has done, and we lack fear of God, even though we have seen his wrath and justice. Even right away in Genesis chapter 9, at the end of Genesis chapter 9, Noah, who is allowed to survive the flood, plants a vineyard and gets drunk. And his own son, who also was with him on the ark and saw the, the, the justice and the wrath of God, sins against his father. Now, here's how I want to encourage you to think about this. Because oftentimes we, we need to look into the past, we need to look at history to inform how we move forward. We need to look at what humanity is like and what's indicated in the Scriptures about what we're like And then we need to think about moving forward. And we need to think about our own history. We need to think about our own past. Because here's the truth. When we look at our own past, we all have regrets. Because we all have sin. We're only seven days into the new year. And I would wager that you have already done something that you wish you hadn't, that you'd thought a thought, or you said a word, or you've done something that you would take back. When we look at God, and then we look at ourselves through the lens of Scripture, we shouldn't be proud or happy with who we used to be, but we should be amazed with who God is and how much he loves us in spite of who we were. And in response to that, we should strive forward with hope to be what God is making us into. Listen, think about this for a minute. The God of power, the God of grace and justice is taking a weak, sinful, non-God-fearing person, and he's making me into his image. And if you have turned from your sin in repentance to Jesus Christ, he is taking you, brothers and sisters, as a weak, sinful, non-God-fearing person, and he's making you into his image. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross so that you could be forgiven of your sins and be made into his image, now in part, but one day in whole, 
You have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are being progressively sanctified into being an image bearer of Jesus Christ. And one day in your glorification, when we see him, we will be like him. And this should invoke in us a response in the way in which we live now. Think about it this way. The very fact that you have breath in your lungs means that God is still giving you a chance to respond with your life in such a way that brings him glory. He is giving you a chance to chase after your goals to the glory of God. He is giving you another chance to tell that person that you know does not know Jesus Christ about the wonderful, merciful, saving God of the universe. If you're alive today, it means God has a purpose for you in his plan that he will bring into fruition in eternity. And it might be for you today the fact that you're here under the sound of my voice or, or watching us online, his plan for you today was to hear this gospel of Jesus Christ, to hear that God is a God of wrath and justice, but he is also a God of power and mercy, so much so that he sent his own son to die for your sins so that you today can turn to him and turn away from your sin and receive salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. Let today, the first Sunday of this new year, be the day that you are made new in Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, those of us who already know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we must be encouraged and motivated through the Word of God to live this year in such a way that brings God glory, knowing that we're tempted to sin, knowing that we are prone to weakness, knowing that we are prone to not fear God, but the powerful creator, provider, merciful, just God of the universe loves you and has a plan for you in 2024. Let us pursue it together to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this incredible reminder from your word as we restart our study in Genesis that you are everything that your word says you are. And that we are everything that your word says we are. And in yet, you've loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us and you have commissioned us to be your messengers of the gospel here on Long Island and ultimately through our missionaries around the world. Lord, I am so thankful for your word that speaks to us even today, but in particular in this day and age where Everyone is so confused about what is right and what is wrong and who is what and, and what a person can be and all of these different issues that are swirling around us. Your word 
cuts through all of them and gives us clarity about your intention and plan for us as humans, that you created us with a purpose, you've given us direction, you've called us to worship you. Now, Lord, help us to do that. Even as we prepare to respond to you in worship by singing in in just a moment, Lord, may our hearts and minds be renewed to see you for who you are and to, in the grace and mercy you've extended to us, live each moment of every day from now until you take us home or you return for your glory. Lord, if there is anyone who is here today who does not know you as their Savior, would today be the day that you call them to yourself? We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.